Good morning. Uh, good morning. It is uh, really a delight and privilege and joy to be uh, here together worshiping. If you are new here, uh, thank you so much for coming. I'm DL. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. Um, I would love to, and we would love to, if, if um, those of us who are part of this congregation would love to get to know you. We're having a, a picnic afterwards, and there'll be food, and just come and enjoy and hang out, get to know people. Uh, that would be our delight, and that would be our joy, um, if, especially if you're here for the first time. But today, today is Easter. It's a day that we celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, from the dead. Uh, we celebrate the death of death today. I, I know that's a, a lot of talking about death, and it, it's a topic that our culture finds to be a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it, when we talk about death. I was reading this article by a lady named Joan Mitford earlier this week, and in, in this article she talks about how um, our culture is increasingly uncomfortable with this idea of death, and so even the language that we use to, to talk about death is leading to a denial in a sense of death. We talk about people who have, are, are no longer with us. We don't say they're dead anymore. We say they have passed away or they've gone somewhere else, or they're sleeping in a garden somewhere. Uh, in, in the whole funeral industry, they don't talk about graveyards anymore. They call them cemeteries, which is a, comes from a Greek word for sleeping place, resting place. Uh, we've changed the terminology. The, the undertaker is no longer the undertaker. They are the funeral director. Right? And all kinds of, of, of words like this and, and terminology that we used to use to uh, explicitly talk about death. Someone, once said, someone said recently that uh, when we used to pray our kids to sleep, we would say, um, if, you know, um, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to, to, you know, to take. And we're reminding children of the reality of death. But today, we read books about good night moon and good night star and good night uh, to the mice and the popcorn and all of these things. And, and it's this, this denial, in a sense, of the reality uh, of death, because we've become very uncomfortable with it. Not only do we deny death, but we try to delay death. You've heard things like this all the time. That's why we exercise. That's why even the appearance of death, we do cosmetic, not we do, but some people do uh, cosmetic surgery in order to delay the appearance of death, because every time we look in the mirror and we see wrinkles or we see our hairline going north, our belly line going south, we realize that I'm getting closer and closer and closer to that time. And we do whatever we can to delay that. Here in Orlando, Florida Hospital, they have this new program called the Healthy 100. Have you heard of this? It's basically an effort to, to talk about how can we live to be 100 years old? How can we push death further and further and further away from us so that we can enjoy life and not have to think about it? Because as a culture, we've become increasingly uncomfortable with death. And then every once in a while, something happens and something comes into our lives that brings us face to face with the reality that we cannot ignore our mortality and the mortality of those around us. And for some of us this week, uh, we knew a, a young man in his 20s who was found dead in his car. And again, we had to face the reality of death. Because when we face death, there is a certain discomfort. There's an uncomfortableness to it and oftentimes when we're in that place, we don't know what to do. The first Easter, as we look into John chapter 20, that's the situation that the disciples faced. They were confronted with the reality of death. And as they stood before the tomb, they did not know what to do. And so as we look into this, I think it's highly, highly, highly informative in a lot of different ways as to how we ought to live life and how we ought to approach death. And so John chapter 20 um, 
in context, you'd have to read verses 1 through 18, but I'm going to, for the sake of time, just jump over verses 1 through 9, where it talks about the disciples going the first day of the week and seeing the tomb was empty. Um, Peter, James, um, I'm sorry, Peter and John and, and Mary, and they see the tomb is empty. And then we're going to pick up in, in, in verse 10 here and read through verse 18. And this is the um, eyewitness account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the apostle John. And this is God's word. It says, then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. This is God's word. This is fascinating, amazing. Um, I this is a, a powerful, beautiful, beautiful passage. And sometimes, you know, if you've grown up in church, it's easy to kind of hear about the, the resurrection story, to hear about these familiar stories. And as we read it again, it's just kind of like, okay, I, I've heard that. What can we find new about it? I'm not trying to bring out something new, but oftentimes when we hone in on one person in the account, when we look at the, 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 the story through one person's eyes, it helps us oftentimes to see it through their perspective. And so I want to focus in on uh, Mary Magdalene and what it is that she saw and what her encounter with Jesus means for the first Easter and what it means for us this, some 2,000 years later this Easter. The first thing that I want to point out to us is Jesus went first to the one who needed him the most. Okay. If you were Jesus, right, if, if this story were, were fictional, okay, if this story were made up, the first person that Jesus Christ would go to would not be someone like Mary Magdalene. Why? Because in a court of law, nobody would believe anything that women said. It's like if you were to, I don't know, you're, you're I don't know, if you're a juror on some kind of a case, and you're like, I know she's guilty. I know she's guilty of doing that crime. How do you know? Uh, because I read it on Facebook, or because I saw it on the internet. And someone else would be like, no, 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 I saw on the internet that they're not guilty. They're innocent. When you go to the internet or you go to Facebook, it's not a very reliable source of information. And that's what they thought about women in these days also. There is no way that if you're making up this story that you would ever concoct a story in which Jesus would appear to Mary Magdalene, a woman, and then say, Mary, go tell your story, because no one would believe her. Who is this Mary that Jesus went to? The Bible talks about her actually five times before. It says that she was a woman who was, I mean, there's a lot of people speculate about what kind of an occupation she had and stuff like that. But the reality is that she was just a woman from a town called Magdala, hence the name Mary Magdalene. And she 
was afflicted with demons, right? She had seven demons that were tormenting her. I don't know if you've ever uh, heard about, uh, I'm not talking about like paranormal activity or the exorcist or things like that, which may be based on truth, but if you've ever seen or encountered someone who is being tormented by demons, it is a scary thing. They do things that they don't want to do and they fight against it and, and yet they, they end up hurting themselves and hurting other people. It's crazy. But she didn't have one or two demons. She had seven of them in her. It's like a Quidditch team fighting inside of her, trying to get her to do all of these things that she doesn't want to do. This is Mary Magdalene. And she's tormented and she's oftentimes like people want to lock her up, but she breaks free. And, and in this one moment, Jesus Christ comes to her and he sets her free in, in one instant, sets her free from all that is afflicting her, all that has damaged her life and all that has damaged her past. And in one moment, he sets her free. And from that moment on, she realizes that there is a person who can change my life. And she goes and she follows him for the rest of his life. The next time we see, she's, she's serving Jesus. The next time we see him, her, she's at the cross. The next thing we see, she's the one helping Joseph take Jesus down from the cross. And then we see her here. And we find her when Peter and John have left to go run and tell the disciples, she remains at the tomb crying. Why? Because the only thing she wanted to do, if you've ever been at a, at a funeral, if you've ever lost a loved one, I've been to funerals and I, I see people when, when their loved one is about to be, the casket is closed for the last time and it's time for them to go, they just want to linger uh, in front of the one that they loved. Even though they, they know that they're not going to talk to them, they're not going to do it, they just want to be there because in their last moment, they want to be there in that moment. And, and that's what Mary's there to do. She wants to, uh, uh, to continue to cleanse his body for one last time and she goes to do it and the body's not there. So in her mind, what is she thinking? No one is thinking that Jesus has risen from the dead. Okay, that would be foolish talk in those days. I mean, it a lot of times we have this idea that, oh, people back then 2,000 years ago are so stupid. They believed anything. But here we are 2,000 years later. We're so smart. We know things like that don't happen. Isn't that what we think? Uh, I think C.S. Lewis is one who said that is um, chronological snobbery to think that we're so much smarter than they are. That, oh, they believed anything that they could. No, it wasn't like that. They knew just as we do that if a person dies, they stay dead. That's the reality. I don't know if you've ever heard this story of this woman. She didn't get along very well with her next-door neighbor. Uh, she had a German shepherd. And so one day she looks out the window and she sees her German shepherd. She's got the neighbor's rabbit in, in, in her mouth. And the German shepherd is just ripping it apart, shaking it side to side. This rabbit is, is dead, completely dead. And so the lady looks out the window. She's like, oh, my goodness. And she starts flipping out because she knows that the neighbors are not nice people. Right? They've got guns, and they're going to hunt her down. And so she runs out. She takes a, a broomstick, and she starts hitting her dog until finally his dog lets the rabbit go, and the rabbit is, I mean, it's lifeless. And so she's, she's, she's like in a panic, so she takes this rabbit. She runs inside. She bathes him, washes him, takes a blow dryer, and blow dries it off until it gets to its original fluffiness. And then she sneaks into their yard and props it up into the, the cage that the rabbit used to live in, and then she goes inside. She's like, whew, dodged the bullet there. <laughs> Little while later... She hears the neighbor screaming hysterically. And the lady comes running out. She's like, what happened? What happened? And they're like, our rabbit. Our rabbit, she died two weeks ago. We buried her, and now she's alive in the cage. <laughs> she knew. She knew just like you and I do, that when a rabbit dies, a rabbit stays dead. And we know this today. When a human being dies, 
right? They stay dead. Everybody knows this, right? This is the way it is. If you were to be, try and begin and create a religion that you think is going to change the world, you would not begin it on the premise that a dead person rose again. Now, you wouldn't do that. Because the only thing they'd have to, the only thing they'd have to do is just find the body. They had so many people who wanted to kill this Jesus movement, all they needed to do was produce a body. There was no categories of thinking that somebody would actually rise from the dead. And so here Mary, it says, she's, uh, it says Mary stood outside the tomb, verse 11, crying as she wept. She bent over to look in the tomb. She's literally, I mean, she's weeping hysterically. Okay, she is sobbing. It's the kind of sobbing where you, you can't breathe, right? That's the kind of sobbing that she's going through. And, and it says the angels, verse 12, two angels in white are sitting there, and they don't understand it because they know everything that happened. They know Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. No one would say this unless it actually happened. And so the angels are like, what is wrong with you? This is not a moment of tears. This is a moment of celebration. Like, woman, what is wrong with you? Why are you crying? And this is what she says. They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. What other explanation could she have than to say that they stole the body? Someone took him. And she's broken because she just wanted to see him for one last time. Just one last time. She wants to see her Lord. In verse 14, before the angels can even say anything, at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Now, look, if you were Jesus, right, two, like, it, it's two days in our thinking, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They say the third day Jesus rose again because in their, in their Jewish way of counting time, it, every part of a day con, is considered a day. So Friday's the first day, Saturday's second day, third day is, is Sunday. So here Jesus just two days ago, three days in their counting, was hanging on a cross, right? Crucified by the people that he came to love and he came to give his life for. So he's hanging on a cross. If you were Jesus, just pretend. If I was you, I thought about this. If I was Jesus, who would I go to first? Man, I would go to the people who said crucify him, and I'd say, surprise, look at me. Hey, what else you got? What else you got? Bring your best. You tried to kill me, and look at me now. How you like me now? Sucker. That's what I'd say. <laughs> I, might go to the, I might go to the Romans and say, let my people go, and they would, they would all faint. Right? It would be crazy. I would not go to Mary Magdalene. I would not go to her because I know that she, she's emotional. She's crying. I wouldn't go to her first, but Why? Why did he go to her first? Because Jesus goes first to the one who needed him the most. And I think in here today, maybe there are some of us who need to know the touch of a Savior. And perhaps that's why you're here. I don't know your story in here, but I'm, I, I know for a fact that there are, there are a lot of us in here who don't usually come to church or co- at least come to church here. And maybe you're here because Jesus wants you to know that he's here for you. See, Mary needed to understand that even when I don't see him, he's here. And maybe some of us need to know that. This, this week, a, a few days ago, my wife Olivia went out with a friend of hers, and so I had uh, nighttime duty with my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and um, we have great times together, usually not at nighttime trying to make her sleep, but the rest of the time is really good, and, and so here I am trying to put her to sleep, and from the get-go, everything that 
is in my mind that I'm playing out in my mind, this is the way it's supposed to happen, doesn't happen. And she completely throws all these curveballs at me. At the end of the night, it's been an hour and a half, and I'm still sleeping with her, trying to get her to fall asleep, and she wants to run around the house. Right? Some of y'all daddies have experienced that before, right? So here I am, I'm trying to put her to sleep, and she's just crying from the get-go. She won't even let me pray with her. I'm trying to tell her stories, and none of this is working. She wants mom. She can't get mom, so she has to settle for second best, which is me. And she's like, Dad, don't leave. And so I'm like, all right, let's sing these songs. And I put her down, and she's like causing this major hissy fit, and she's fighting with me. And, and so I, I said, okay, um, okay, Manny, I'll, this is about an hour of ordeal so far. And I'm like, okay, Manny, I'll stay in your room, and I'll sleep in your bed with you, intending that when she falls asleep, I'm going to walk out of the room. So I say, okay, Daddy's going to sleep with you. And so I'm laying down with her, and I'm looking at her, and she's like laughing and playing with her hands. And I'm like, Manny, go to sleep. Close your eyes. <laughs> and she's like messing around. And I say, Manny... I'm trying to be stern because I'm, I'm, there was a magic in Nick's basketball game on TV, and I want to watch it. <laughs> I said, Manny, go to sleep. Close your eyes and go to sleep. And then she does this, like, fake closing her eyes. She's, she's like this. She's, like, like, looking like this. And I'm like, Manny, daddy, I'm saying this in Korean. I said, Manny, daddy's not stupid. And she said to me, then why are you in my bed? <laughs> Just kidding. She didn't say that. She was thinking that, I'm sure. Touche, Dad. But I'm, I'm in her and I'm like, Manny, close your eyes. So she closes her eyes finally, and as she does, slowly she begins to move her hand, and she's like moving it closer and closer until finally it's like touching my arm. And in my mind, I'm thinking, this is, I know what she's trying to do. She's trying to, she's trying to understand that even when she doesn't see me, she needs to know that I'm still there with her. And that's what Mary is desperately needing to understand. And I think that's what some of us really need to understand. That you may not know he's with you. You may not know his name. You may not know who he is. And when you can't see him, he wants you to know that he's with you. And that he came first for the ones who needed him the most. And then we go on in verse 15. Woman, why are you crying, Jesus says. Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. She doesn't understand. This, is, this happened a couple of times after the resurrection, is that Jesus would show up in these people, but the people couldn't recognize him. For Mary, it might have been because of her grief. Some people say, oh, she was crying so much she couldn't see clearly. But there's something different about the resurrected body of Jesus Christ that is veiled at this point in time. The second thing that I want us to see, because he says in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, and her life has changed. The second thing that I want us to see is when Jesus calls our name, we must respond in faith. When Jesus calls our name, we must respond in faith. John White, in his book called The Fight, he says, faith is our response to God's initiative. Faith is your response and my response to God's initiative. And so here we see nothing can convince Mary of what's going on until finally Jesus, verse 16, said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's this, this one word and everything that has happened up until this point in time completely changes. In this one moment, knowing his presence with her, her life is completely flipped right side up. What happens? You all know the power of of just one word, the emotional weight that just one word can have spoken from a loved one. 
I don't know if you remember the movie back in the 90s, Ghost. Anyone seen this movie called Ghost? Back in the day, it was the bomb diggity because it had three A-list superstars. Whoopi Goldberg, she, I'm going to, Whoopi Goldberg, Demi Moore in her prime, right? and Patrick Swayze. Right? Real, this, is, this is like superstars here. The movie, I'm going to explain the movie. You're going to think this is the wackest movie, but this guy, Sam, and this girl, Molly, love each other. Right? But he dies trying to save her life. He dies, right? He's gone. And the story is about him trying to get in contact with Molly as a ghost. And he does it through the means of a fortune-telling medium played by Whoopi Goldberg. Right? You guys are like, what the heck? But it's this great scene. Um, you can Google it. You can find it where Whoopi Goldberg's character, Oda Mae Brown, okay, she's the psychic. She's sitting in this diner with Molly. And Sam, through Whoopi, is trying to get her, Molly, to understand that he loves her and that he's with her and he's talking to her. And Demi Moore, Molly, is like, whatever, dude. You are completely crazy. And so Sam says to Otome, he says, tell her I love her. And so Otome Brown says to Molly, he loves you. He said he loves you. She's like, no, he, what are you doing to me? He would never say anything like that. And she gets up to leave, and so Sam is panicking, and he's like, tell her, tell her, ditto, ditto, tell her, ditto. Do you remember this? Tell her, ditto. And as she's walking away, Oda Mae Brown is listening to Sam. She's like, what the, what do what you, th-? ditto, he said, ditto. And all of a sudden, Demi Moore stops in her tracks. The music starts playing. <laughs> she turns around, and then tears start coming out. And she realizes in that moment just one word. One word tells her that it really is him, the one that she's been longing for, the object of her eternal and undying devotion. It's just one word that Jesus speaks into Mary's life, and all of a sudden, she's completely undone. All of the pain and all of the hurt and all of the sorrow just begins to dissolve out of her, and she turns around, and she's like, oh, my goodness, and she can see the light. I don't know if you've ever had this kind of an experience where it was so clear to you that God is speaking to you, and that he's calling you by name, and that he's drawing you out. I've, I've shared this a lot in the past before, but for those of you who don't know, uh, I was a college student back in 1996, and I was at this convention called Urbana, but at this convention, I was just wrestling and dealing with a lot of stuff that, that first semester of my uh, junior year in college, and... I just started having, I grew up in church, but I started having these doubts about, does God really care for, for me? Does he really love me? And I just began wrestling with a, with a kind of doubt, unlike anything that I've ever experienced as, as walking with, with Christ. Just feeling like, how can God really care for, for me in the midst of all of this world to, to run and to order? And, and as we started getting in this place, I, I thought that this conference that everyone had talked about was going to be so good for my spiritual life and for my, just to rekindle an, an understanding of God. But as soon as I got there, I realized, you know what, there's 18,000 other people, and I just felt tiny in that place. And 18,000 people are, are there, and they're singing, and they're worshiping, and I just like, even this, this sense like, God, out of 18,000 people, do you know anything? Like, can you really see me? And can you really care about my concerns? I'm in the midst of 18,000, but our world at the time was about 6 billion, 5.5 billion. Can you really see, like me, little me, can you see me? 
And as this worship set went on, we're singing these songs and, and just these thoughts fill my mind. And then we sang this song. It's called, He Knows My Name. And the chorus of the song says, He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls. And he hears me when I call. And in that moment, it was like God was reaching down through that, that, that dome in, in Champaign at the University of Illinois, and he was reaching into my heart, and he's speaking, and he's whispering into my heart saying, I know you. I see the tears that have fallen. I'm not ignoring those tears. I haven't. I haven't. In fact, I'm so near to you. I'm the one wiping those tears off of your eyes. And, and as if that wasn't enough, as we're singing this song on the screen, they started flashing all of these names up there. And in this one moment, I, I'm, I'm beginning to, to, to cry. I don't cry often. But I'm starting to cry in this place. And in the midst of this chorus, like my name comes up on the screen. David, Larry, I'm just kidding. But my name, David, pops up there. And I just completely just, I'm, I'm messed up in that place. Because it's like God was just so clearly letting me know and comforting me and speaking to me in that place and saying, I'm with you, I'm with you. I'm going to go back to your campus with you. I'm going to go to the places I'm calling you to go. I'm with you even when you don't know it, even when you don't see it. And that's what God was saying to Mary. That's what Jesus was saying to Mary here. I don't know about you if, if you've ever heard the voice of God calling you. Maybe it's, it's, it's a little bit more subtle in the midst of a song. And something just begins to reverberate in your heart. That something about that song, you just feel like God is, is tugging at your heart and he's calling out to you. Or maybe you feel like in the midst of, uh, of a sermon or the midst of a Bible passage or you're driving to, to work and you're listening to some radio station and, and a Bible verse comes on, the, uh, comes on the air and it's just speaking directly into your situation. You ever had a, a time like that? Where it's just so clear that God is calling your name and he's speaking to you. Jesus calls our name and when he calls your name, he calls us to respond. We need to respond by faith. That's our response to the initiative of God. And so here comes, she turns around, and it says she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Why didn't it just say she cried out teacher? Because there is a depth to meaning in this phrase that cannot be communicated in a foreign language. And, and so for all of the readers, they're hearing and they're understanding what this means, that she hadn't heard the voice of Jesus for quite some time, but in this moment she hears and she responds with, as intimate as this voice Mary was, this is an, an intimate exchange saying, teacher, my God, my King, my Savior, my Deliverer, saying all of me for all of you, here I am, and she's giving it all to him. Jesus calls us and he calls us to respond. Maybe I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure that there are some of us in here who have not heard the voice of Jesus calling us for a very long time. And as he calls out to you today, he's letting you know that, you know what, you may not have heard it for a while, but I'm still here. I'm still calling you. I'm not mad at you. He wasn't mad at me. I'm not mad at you. I'm not angry at you. I'm calling you back. It's my kindness that brings you back to me. Do you understand? And maybe some of us in here have never heard the voice of love, but today maybe you're hearing it for the first time. And God's like, don't ignore that. That's not just the breakfast that you ate this morning. This may be the voice of God as he's calling out to you. Hey, will you respond in faith? Because he's here. We don't serve and worship a dead God, my friends. He's alive. He's risen from the grave, and he's alive, and he's Lord, and he's calling out to us. And he says, will you respond in faith? 
For some people, that means I'm going to start asking questions again. Maybe for some of us, that means I'm going to read a book. Maybe for others, it's I'm going to start coming to church, or I'm going to talk to my friend who I know has been walking with, with Jesus. Whatever that next step looks like, it's just a small step of faith. He's calling us to, to move in that direction. And then the last thing, the last thing that we see starting in, in verse 17, what Jesus, Jesus promises to give us much more than what we already have. Jesus promises to give us much more, so much more than what we already have. So here she, she starts clinging to him, is what it says in other passages. She's like grasping his feet. Jesus says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. In verse 18, she responds in faith. Mary went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, and she told them, that he had said these things to her. What, what's happening here? Jesus says, don't hold on to me. So she sees Rabboni, my God, my master. She falls down at his feet. She begins grasping his feet. And he says, uh-uh, you can't touch this, right? This is hammer time, right? He says, don't hold on to me. Why? He's trying to say, look, Mary, you think that I'm the same person I was or you think you're understanding me in the same way that you did when I was st- before I had gone to the cross, but it, everything is different. Everything is different now. Do you think I'm going to be here on earth forever? Mary, you need to let go of me because if you let go of me, then I'm going to give you something so much better. See, if I'm here, then you're only going to be with me for 40 days, 40 more days, and then I'm gonna, I, I need to go to heaven. But when I go up to heaven, I will send my Holy Spirit so that not only will I be with you, but now I will be within you. That I'm giving you something so much greater that the promised presence of God dwells within the heart of everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus says, let go, He only tells us to let go of something so that he could give us something better. Jesus is not withholding something from Mary, nor is he withholding something from us. He's actually giving something to her. And she, by faith, responds to that and says, okay, I will let go. See, it's interesting because after the resurrection, everything is different. Look at what Jesus says here in in verse 17. Go instead to my brother's. And tell them I'm returning to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. It's very interesting here because Jesus has never, ever, ever referred to his group of followers in this way. He called them his disciples. He called them his followers. He called them his servants. At the end of his life, he said, you know what? I don't call you servants anymore. I call you my friends. And then here he cranks up the level of intimacy and he says, you know what? Go to my brother's. And then he says to them, tell them that my father is their father and my God is their God. He's ratcheting up the level of intimacy to a degree that they've never before experienced. Saying you and I can experience intimacy with God and know this God who made the heavens and the earth, who by the power of God raised a dead man as a promise that those who believe in him will one day be raised again. He's saying that God can be your God and that God can be your father. See, Jesus is promising to give us so much more than we already have, than Mary already has. He's saying, go and and, and believe this and receive this and live in this and take it and run with it. And as he goes on, we see that the, the greatest thing that Jesus, the greatest thing that Jesus promised to his people is life eternal. And I know some of you are like, dude, 
If you look at my life, I don't want to live this life forever. Are you kidding me? You don't understand the brokenness in me. You don't understand the jacked up relationships that I have. You don't understand the heavy weight of guilt and shame that I carry every day of my life. To, To say that this life eternal, forget it. I don't want that. But remember that Jesus offers and promises so much more than we already have. It's not just this life, broken life over and over and over into eternity. He's not saying that's what your life is going to be. What is the kind of life that Jesus promises to you and to me? When when Jesus came into the world, when he started his earthly ministry, just three and a half years, he started talking about the kingdom of heaven. And he started saying the kingdom of heaven is here. It's here now. It's here because the king of that kingdom is here in Jesus Christ. And he just begins to talk about the kingdom. And then he begins just giving out samples and appetizers of that kingdom. What is the nature of the kingdom of heaven? You see, there's something about these miracles. Jürgen Moltmann, he was a German theologian. He says, in our hearts, we long for these miracles to be true, even though we don't believe them. We don't think they could ever happen, but there's a longing within our hearts for them to be true. Isn't that curious? Isn't that interesting? Why we would long for them when so often we disbelieve them? One theologian, C.S. Lewis, said, our longing for something is a perfect picture reminding us that the fulfillment of that longing is possible. So he says, when we get thirsty, it tells us that there's something like water that can satisfy that thirst, right? You get hungry, it tells you that there is such thing as food and bread and meat that will satisfy that hunger. You get tired, and so you fall asleep. You have sexual urges because you want to have, there is such a thing as sex that can satisfy that longing. And so we have this longing for a better world, for these things to be true. And when Jesus did these miracles, we think, oh, you know what? That's like this weird thing. It's like magic and, and, and Chris Angel and David Blaine's type stuff. He's just passing out miracles here and there. But instead of that being the paranormal, what if we begin to see it for what Jesus says it is? He says, this is a restoration, a picture of the coming kingdom. That this isn't something abnormal in an otherwise normal world. He's saying this is the only thing normal in a world that is jacked up and broken. So here, Jesus goes and he feeds 5,000 people. What Jesus is saying in that, not only that he's the bread of life, but he's also saying as a subtext, he's saying, let me tell you something. When people get hungry, that's not the life. That's not the world that I created. A world where people die because of starvation, that's not the world I created. In my world, in my kingdom, there will be no hunger, no starvation. Jesus goes and he heals the blind. He, he, he heals the leper because he says, in my world, there is no sickness. There is no brokenness. There is no pain. That's life eternal. He takes this man, Lazarus, as a symbol and he raises him from the dead. He says, in my kingdom, people do not die. Though you die, you will live forever. Life and death, death for a follower of Christ is just a change of address. You go on and you live forever in a perfect kingdom. And he calms a storm. Why? Because he wants us to know that tsunamis and earthquakes and tornadoes and all of these things are not normal. These are a product of sin, and the reason why these things happen is because our world is fallen and broken and messed up. And Jesus is saying, I'm promising you that if you believe that there is life in a kingdom where none of these things, none of these broken things exist, but everything that I've come to do, these miracles are pictures and snapshots of the kingdom come. It's like this is the life eternal.
This is what Jesus is offering, my friends. He's like, it's so much better than what we have in this life. And it only gets better and better and better. Our world tells us, you know what? Show me. Show me first, and then I'll believe. Jesus says, believe. Believe. Trust. And if you do, then I will blow your mind away by what you begin to see. Today, Jesus invites us into a life of faith, into a step of faith. Just one small step. That's all it takes. And he says, I'll walk with you. He says, your church, there's a church that will walk with you to help you discover uh, who this Jesus is and to see if he really, what he says he is, really is true. I invite you to walk on this journey with us. Let's pray. As we pray, I just want, yeah, I just want to throw that out there. I think Jesus is, is wanting us to know that he's here with us and, and that he's real, he's alive. Um, that he wants us to know that he's calling us and he's calling our name. And if we would but respond in faith, that he would meet us and that he would satisfy us and that he'd begin to show us things to fix our broken lives, to heal our broken lives, to bring change and transformation. So let's just take a minute and, and prayer. All prayer is just talking to God. Um, whether you believe in him, if you believe in him, then, then talk to him. If you don't believe in him, just, yeah, maybe take a step of faith and say, God, if you're really there, then somehow make it known. Somehow make it clear. Somehow speak to me so that I could see you, so that I could know you. Let's just pray. Let's, let's just pray for a minute together. Um, just pray quietly in your heart as we respond to God's word.